well, happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We are in 2 Kings chapter 4 once again, and this time we are going to cover those last verses which close the chapter. That's verses 38 through 44. And it's at this point we need to remind ourselves that everything is not as it should be. In fact, everything seems to be upside down. Remember when we went back into 1 Kings, the beginning of the book, we discovered David was sick, but things were still relatively good. The kingdom was still on the ascent. Solomon's reign was to come. And under Solomon, everyone flourished. I don't think the glory of Solomon's kingdom is captured any better than it is in verse 25 of 1 Kings chapter 4, where we read, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Under Solomon, everyone was flourishing. Every man a king, every woman a queen, every family with its own fig and vine. Everything was very good. That was then. This is now. Solomon's idolatry caused the kingdom to be split asunder. So that you have ten northern tribes called Israel, and then one southern tribe called Judah. And during that split, Jeroboam erected a false religion in the north, setting up two golden calves at Bethel and Dan. And ever since, the land has been marked by idolatry and darkness. Elijah, the great prophet, showed up, and his ministry was carried out with rebuke and thunder and rain and even resurrection, and yet the house of Omri, the house of Ahab, still refused to repent and turn to him in faith. And now Ahab's progeny reign over Israel, and Elijah's apprentice, Elisha, now carries on God's work in the land. Things are very dark. Famine is spread across the land. The covenant curse marks the ground as the land that is flowing with milk and honey is found to be barren. That land which was promised to bear good fruit has only poisoned gourds to offer. And yet amidst that darkness, beneath that curse, there is a faint light shining. God is preserving for himself a people. In the culture of death, there are the people of light and life. They are the ones who have drawn near to the prophet Elisha. Where the prophet is in Israel, there is life. That's our main idea this morning. Where the prophet is, there is life. And where the prophet is, there is life, because where the prophet is, there is God's word, God's power, and God's very presence. 
Where the prophet is, there is life, as we have seen throughout this chapter, death give way to life. We saw the grieving widow who is going to lose her sons to debtor's prison. She was basically under a death sentence by way of debt, and yet Elisha caused her oil to multiply and brought life to the situation. We saw the barren womb of the faithful Shunammite woman brought to life by way of a promised child. That same child died, and we saw him brought back from the dead through the prayers of Elisha. And now we come to last installment, and we will find small, much smaller problem, but still a significant one, as the sons of the prophet are hungry and discover death in the pot. And once again, we will see the prophet bring life where there is death. Where the prophet is, there is life. Let's pray, and we'll get into the text this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ as the final great prophet, who is your word made flesh, who doesn't just bear your presence, but but is your presence. We thank you that through faith in Jesus Christ, when we draw near to him by your grace and are united to him by your Holy Spirit, through him we have life. We thank you that his death is our death. That because we are united to him by faith, when he was buried, we were buried with him. And that because we are united to him by faith, when he was raised, we were raised with him. We thank you that because we are united to him by faith, that where he sits at your right hand right now, so too we sit. We thank you that because we are united to him by faith, When we pass on from this life, we will come immediately into your presence. We will behold his wonderful face. We thank you that because we are united to him by faith, we too will share in a resurrection like his when our souls are reunited with our bodies on that last great day when the just and the unjust are raised and judged. But we thank you that because of Christ, we need not fear that judgment. We need not fear the eternal punishment our sins have earned. Rather, we get to look forward to the eternal blessing that the Lord Jesus Christ has earned and gives to all who trust in him. Lord, thank you for this good news. Thank you for calling us your own. Thank you for coming to us a dead people and bringing us to life by your Holy Spirit word. We we give you praise and honor and thanks. You are the God who provides all things. You are the God who has provided a way for us to escape death and hell and to come into life eternal. Through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Look with me at verse 38, 2 Kings chapter 4. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, where there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. 
we see right away that there is a famine in the land. We know that it lasts seven-ish years from chapter 8, which we haven't gotten to yet, but I'm telling you, famine in the land. And you will notice that just like when there was a famine in the land under Elijah's ministry, that Elisha, just like Elijah, is not exempt from the famine. There's famine in the land. It's a covenant curse of God on the people because of their idolatry, because of their sins. And the faithful in the land are not exempt from the famine. They are not exempt from suffering. This is important. There are some who would teach us that if you are a Christian and if you are faithful, you will never suffer and nothing bad will ever happen to you. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's not true here in Kings as the sons of the prophets together with Elisha find themselves being crushed by the famine. And it wasn't true when God's faithful son went to the cross to die for his unfaithful sons and daughters. No, Christians are not exempt from suffering. We need to remind ourselves that just because we know the Lord, we will not be spared from his judgment in this life. Sin still has consequences. Suffering still happens. Bad things still happen to God's people. This text reminds me that we do live in a very prosperous place. It's hard for us to relate to famine and want and need. But as I thought more about it this week, I, I felt prompted to pray. Because we have, it's easy to forget, we, we have brothers and sisters across the globe who are not so prosperous. Who know what it is to face famine and hardship. Friends, let's pray for those who have a lot that is much more difficult than our own. Remind ourselves the faithful are not exempt from suffering. They were not exempt from the famine in the land here. They're hungry, and so Elisha says, set on the large pot and boil the stew for the sons of the prophets. They've probably had boiled stew a lot of times now. Verse 39. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Elisha said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Not many of you know this, but I, I did used to work as a chef for a time. Of course, that is an inflated way of characterizing my work in the halfway house on a golf course where I distributed hot dogs and wraps. But still, 
I like to claim the moniker for myself. Chef, I tell Chelsea all the time. You know, I was a chef once. The truth is, I am terrible in the kitchen. I have no idea what I'm doing in there. But that doesn't mean I've never made an unforgettable meal. One time, I made for Chelsea years ago, and if you ask her about it later, she will immediately know what you were talking about. I made her an unforgettable grilled cheese sandwich. I somehow, I managed to, to burn the outside portions of the sandwich where the bread is, and then failed to melt the cheese on the inside. And so I thought to myself, what should I do? How can I remedy this? And so I just popped it in the microwave for a little bit. And so you, you have a wonderful grilled cheese sandwich. The cheese was melted. The outside was burnt. And I set it before Chelsea, and, and she said, there's death on the plate. That's sort of what's happening here. I don't, some people think that if they would have eaten enough of these wild gourds, that they actually would have died. But I, I actually think it just tastes really bad. Now, true, it could have had some side effects that were detrimental, you know, some, some diarrhea or something like that. But the point is, they don't like the soup. It's terrible. There's death in the pot. And Elisha responds by performing uh, the first ever, this will, only some of you will get this, hour of flour, okay? And he brings the flour out, and he remedies the pot. And then they're able to eat it, and you read that little phrase, there was no harm in the pot. What is going on here? Why, why this small miracle? I mean, it really is pedestrian. Should we really be impressed by Elisha's ratatouille impression, right? They just messed up the soup. He sprinkles a little this, a little that, and voila. It's great. Why is this here? Because God cares about soup. I mean, we understand when God does these major miracles earlier on. He turns pools of water. He causes water to just fill up the wilderness. And then he makes it appear like blood so Israel can have victory over their enemies. He, he gives the woman oil that, that runs over and fills up all those jars. He gives a miraculous birth of a child. He raises, he's just raised this boy from the dead. And now for my next trick, I'll make bad soup taste good. Why? And it's because God cares about soup. He cares about little things. God is not distant or remote from you and I. In fact, Jesus Christ is closer to you and I than the sons of the prophets here were to Elisha. Church, he cares about you and about the nitty-gritty details in your life. He is a God of the details. Isn't that amazing? The one who strung the stars in the sky is concerned with the wild gourd soup brewed by his prophets. He looks down and sees their cauldron bubbling with liquid death. And he cares. Friends, this should encourage us to pray. He delights to be involved in even the smallest of things. I wonder, do you hesitate to pray about sort of frivolous things? You know, dishwashers and 
parking spaces and you know, lost buttons. You shouldn't be. Don't be afraid to pray. God is interested in all of your life. He's intimately involved in it. He's happy to answer prayers. Sometimes I think we're like, I don't want to bother God with that. He's not interested in that part of my life. But God is much more, if you've ever seen parents will do this sometimes, they'll gather up all of their children's sort of art projects or maybe when they're babies, they dip their feet in the ink and then they press them on the page and you have the little baby footprints or they keep a little baby book and oh here's the lock of hair and here's their first tooth disgusting but they get all of it together and they put it in a little box somewhere and they sock it away and I I guess you take that out every once in a while and you just get all sentimental oh my kids because you care they're your kids now what happens you go to somebody else's house and you're rummaging around the attic and you bump into a box that's very similar and you open it up and there's there's teeth and there's hair and you're like this is a serial killer what's wrong with this person no, really, you don't care. Like, this is junk. I'm going to throw it out, right? But when it's, when it's your kid, you care. You care. It's like if there's a big group photo, who do you look for? If you're not in it, obviously, everybody looks for themselves first, let's be real. But, but if, it's, if it's your kids in a big group photo, you're looking not at all the other children, but at your children. Friends, God cares about you like that. He's interested in where you are in the photo. He's happy to know all the little details of your life, your first haircut, your first lost tooth. He cares about all of those things. So don't be afraid to pray for things. And I can testify to you on this count. I pray for a lot of little things. It doesn't always work out the way I would hope, but there have been plenty of times where I've prayed for lost keys and found them in the backyard buried beneath grass or hung on a pineapple in the kitchen. One time I prayed to find a lost baby monitor that somehow had found its way behind a poster and was sandwiched between the poster and the wall. Like, I never would have found this, Lord. I don't know how I did. I've prayed for parking spaces. I've prayed for and received furniture. I've prayed for tuition costs in the past and received them. Just recently, Chelsea and I were on a long trip and somehow we forgot the diaper bag I think that's her fault more than mine, if you're asking me. But, but we were diaper bagless, and so I closed my eyes, and I prayed to the Lord, to, you know, please give us a place that's along our route. We have a long drive that also sells diapers. That's a little more tricky than you would think. You know, 15 minutes later, we have an exit, and there's, I mean, everything is a CVS and a Walmart and a, a Lidl that's like a, an Aldi sort of place. I mean, We even got milkshakes after. It was fantastic. The Lord answers little prayers. He's interested in the little details in your life. It's always a good idea to practice prayer. Because here's the truth. You don't just need the Lord's provision for the big things in your life. You need the Lord's provision for the soup and for each step you take. Can't do it without him. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Let us be a people who carry the little things, the soup things, to the Lord. I'm also encouraged here because 
we see that God cares. And we also see that our mistakes cannot thwart God's plans and purposes. Imagine, this servant of Elisha means well, right? He's, he's, he sees the boiling pot, he, he goes out and he's looking for something to put into it to add it just a little zest and flavor, and he stumbles on the best wild gourds you have ever seen. He gets as much as he can carry, he comes back to the pot, he chops them up, you know, he's dumping them into the pot, stirring it up, and he's going, this is going to be a stew night to remember. And then there's death in the pot. It's an honest mistake. It could have had really bad ramifications. And yet the Lord sees fit to redeem the situation. What I mean to say is, your mistakes cannot undo God's purposes and plans in the world. That's a really good thing, a really freeing thing. I mean, maybe you have given somebody what felt like wise counsel and it turned out to be bad advice. Maybe you were well-meaning and you tried to correct a loved one, a brother and sister in Christ or your children, and in hindsight, you did it in anger and in unlove. Maybe you've just tried to help and ended up hurting. Friend, your errors cannot derail God's purposes and plans. He overcomes the mistake of our stew chef, and he is able to rule over and overrule your mistakes. This is a good reminder that God's kingdom and the success of the church in the world will not fail because of you. The Lord won't allow our errors to destroy his people or his purposes. That's good news. One commentator writes, How many times Christ cushions our folly, redeems our errors, and neutralizes our stupidity. It is a great consolation to have such a Lord. We should rest in this truth, loved ones. God is not only able to redeem us from our sins, he's able to redeem and use even our mistakes. The scene now shifts. There's no harm in the pot. The prophets eat. But famine, well, it continues. And hunger returns. And once more we find God providing. Verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. Now this is interesting. This man comes from Baal Shalashah, and he's bringing the, the first fruit offering, which would normally go to the temple or to the priest, he's bringing it to Elisha. And I think this tips us off to the total corruption of the priesthood in Israel. 
And so what he's doing is, is I'm not going to take my offering to the priests who are sold out to idolatry. I'm going to take my offering to the one who truly bears God's presence and God's word. I'm bringing it to Elisha. Look back in verse 23, and you can see that the Shunammite woman also had picked up this practice, going to him at new moon and at Sabbath. And so he's bringing his offering to Elisha, and we are again encouraged, because though things are dark in Israel, God has kept for himself a faithful remnant. It's a good reminder to us that God keeps for himself a people. And that oftentimes, in the places we least expect it, God has a man. One of my favorite nonchalant sort of hat tips to this truth comes from Paul at the end of Philippians. In chapter 4, verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You wouldn't expect Christians to be in Caesar's household. And he sort of throws it out there. Brothers and sisters, God has people all over the place. He preserves his people. His word works. He will keep his people faithfully with him unto the end. This man brings Elisha 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha says, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So Elisha repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left. According to the word of the Lord. So you have this set up again. There's not much coming. It was carried in a sack. There's 20 loaves of, of barley and some ears of grain. And Elisha says to his servant, hey, feed everybody with this. And his servant does the math really quick and goes, we don't have enough food. How do you expect me to carry out this task? And Elisha says, you know, I didn't stutter here. I bear the presence of God, the power of God, and I'm telling you to pass out the food. Here's a little test of faith. It's been a theme in our passage, right? The woman whose oil was multiplied had to believe the word of the prophet to fill up her jars. The Shunammite woman had to depend on the prophet for her son. And now we see this servant of Elisha will have to believe the prophet's word if he is to carry out the prophet's wishes. He doesn't understand how these 20 measly barley loaves and some grain is going to feed a hundred men. And yet, he acts by faith. He obeys the word of the prophet and the result, a hundred full bellies and leftovers. Sometimes, obedience must precede understanding. Sometimes obedience must come before we have all the answers. In fact, that's true a lot of the time. There are, there are plenty of things 
that the Bible teaches us where when we initially think about them or we think about what we would like to do, sort of rub us the wrong way. We have questions. We want answers. We sort of think to ourselves, once I understand all the dynamics of everything going on here and why God wants me to do this, then I will do it. But friends, we are so often called to obey, not because we have all the answers, but because we know who we have trusted. Because our God is trustworthy and good. And so when he tells us to do something in his word, we trust and obey. Because he's worthy. Not because we have absolutely everything figured out. Too often that's an excuse for disobedience. We want to sit back and ask why in perpetuity in order to justify doing what we want instead of what God has commanded. I see this in myself. And oftentimes I get object lessons from my children. Right? Why, why, why? Because I said so. Right? Well, the Lord said so. You can trust him. You don't need to know all his reasons. You need simply to trust and obey. I think I've quoted that song way too often during this series on kings, but it does sort of quantify the message of the book. Hear the word of the Lord. Obey the word of the Lord. Trust and obey. That's the message. The word of the Lord rules the world. The world works according to the word of the Lord. Listen. It's the message over and over again. We must trust the word of the Lord. The servant trusts, and the result is God's provision. We can trust God's word, and we can trust God to provide. He provides for his people. It's miraculous. The bread is multiplied. There's no immediate note of thanksgiving here. But I'm sure that those who partook were quite thankful. Sometimes I don't know that we really depend on the Lord for provision in our lives. He, he is the one that is, gives us life and breath and everything. But if we're really honest with ourselves, if you're really honest with yourself, deep down, don't you think a little bit like uh, Beyonce said, an independent woman so long ago, I depend on me, right? Like the reason I have a home or clothes on my back or food on my table, it's because of the hard work that I've done. Don't you think that deep down? I think there's really sort of two ways where we stop depending on God and his provision. There's probably more, but, but these are two I thought of. One way is we don't have enough, and we go, how can I fix this? How am I going to get on? So we get filled with anxiety. And then the other side of the coin, where I think most of us are, is we just think, I've already got it. I don't need to pray for my daily bread because it's already in my refrigerator. I don't need to worry about it. But friends, we, we shouldn't be this way. We need to recognize that all of God's provision is just that. It's his provision for us. And he understands that we need simple things. 
like daily bread. There's a reason the Lord's Prayer starts, give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't seem super spiritual, does it? The Lord knows we have needs, knows we have these small needs, and he is interested in meeting them. I just wonder, put yourself back in the Israelite mindset as they're wandering through the wilderness. You wake up in the morning and you walk out and there is manna. You turn to your spouse and you say, he did it again. Food, God wills we live another day. He has, has met our needs. I mean, imagine you go to bed at night and you come down the stairs in the morning and you walk into the kitchen and you go, Pop-Tarts! Bagels! Pancakes, this is amazing! You know, there's nothing down there before. That's just not our reaction to breakfast, right? You walk in and you're just half asleep. You know, where's the coffee cup at? You're like, oh, amazing! God has provided coffee! But we probably should. Everything we have is from him and for him. We should always be eating and drinking to the glory of God with thanksgiving in our hearts. And, and so I wonder, as God has provided for you, do you give thanks? Or are you grumbling? I guess another thing about this is God provides... <laughs> But oftentimes he provides for us in ways we might not prefer. So, just for example, they are eating wild gourd soup that is cured by flour. Maybe they would have enjoyed some Raisin Cane's chicken tenders or some steak. Elisha is fed food by ravens. You don't think he might have preferred something else? Or Obadiah's 100 prophets. They're put in caves, and they are fed bread and water. Their needs are met, but maybe there was some grumbling. Or even just to pick up on the Israelites in the wilderness, you'll remember that they did indeed grumble. Friend, do you grumble against God's provision in your life rather than giving thanks for it? God indeed does provide oftentimes in ways we might not prefer. Do you give thanks? God cares about his people. He cares about the intimate details in your life. He, he, he provides for you and he will provide for you until he calls you home. This text teaches us, this chapter teaches us that where the prophet is, there's life. Where the prophet is, there is God's provision for God's people. Israel is filled with the death of idolatry. And yet we find that the life of God's prophet is thriving, still shining. Where the prophet is, there's life because the prophet bears God's word and presence and power in this story, you probably already picked up on it. it, it predicts, it prophesies, it points us to that true and final prophet, the Lord Jesus. The prophet who brings life, 
who is the light of the world that shines in the darkness. You can turn with me to John 6 if you want. John 6. Starting in verse 4. Now the Passover, that'll be important later on, Passover meal, remember, a lamb is sacrificed so that the Lord's judgment passes over the people of Israel. Their firstborn lives because the lamb dies and they eat the Passover lamb as part of their fellowship with the Lord in the Old Testament. They're getting ready to celebrate Passover feast. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Philip, I'm sorry, Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So we have a similar situation where Mark describes Jesus. uh, This is John, but in Mark, all these people gather around Jesus and Mark says they are like sheep without a shepherd and that Jesus has compassion on them, and he wants to feed them. And so he instructs his disciples to feed them. And part of that instruction, we know from John, was posing this question to Philip. How are we going to feed all these folks? And maybe he's hoping that Philip will go, well, I guess Moses fed people with manna in the wilderness, or Elisha fed the sons of the prophets with some barley loaves. But instead, uh, Philip says, even if we take pretty good sum of money, and run to Costco, it's not going to be enough to feed all these people. We can't do it. And then Andrew speaks up. Well, there's a, there's a kid here. He has five, five barley loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, perfect. I can work with that. And he has them pass out the bread, not to a hundred prophets, but to 5,000 men. They eat and are satisfied, and there is food left over. I mean, the the crowd immediately makes the connection. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They recognize that Jesus is the promised prophet like Moses, that he's a prophet greater than Elijah or Elisha. You see, the connections are obvious, right? Like Elisha, Jesus feeds many who are following him. Elisha feeds 100, Jesus feeds 5,000. Like Elisha, Jesus has limited resources. Elisha has 20 loaves of barley bread. 
and some grain. Jesus has five loaves of barley bread, same kind of bread. Barley bread and a couple fish. Like Elisha, Jesus tests his followers by asking them to pass out the limited resources. Like Elisha, Jesus multiplies the food so that all can eat and have leftovers. Just like Moses fed the Israelites in the wilderness with manna, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with barley bread. The crowd understands. They get the implications. They see that he is the prophet who is to come into the world. And this miracle demonstrates that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised prophet who was to come. But he's come to do more than simply fill the bellies of those who were with him. This chapter goes on, and Jesus corrects some of those who are following him because he says, you are following after me because you want more bread to fill your bellies, but what you need is my word. You need to put your faith in me. You need to believe. He says it this way in verse 35 of chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He says, you need to come to me. You need to believe in me. To partake of the bread of life is to believe in Jesus. He's using a physical thing to teach a spiritual lesson. And his lesson continues in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This freaks some people out. They don't see that Jesus is using these physical pictures to teach a spiritual lesson. He doesn't, they don't understand that they're calling, he's calling them to trust in him so that their spiritual hunger, the longings of their souls, might be satisfied in him. They don't, they don't get it. They're like, this guy wants us to be cannibals. This is gross. We're going to leave. Many leave him. And then Peter says famously, where are we to go? Because you have the words of life. He doesn't understand it all yet, but he believes. He stays with Jesus. Sometimes 
Obedience comes before understanding. Jesus is teaching a spiritual lesson with physical things. He's calling all who will hear him to come to him and have rest, to have their hunger satisfied, to have their spiritual thirst quenched. And he says, any of you can come, and if you come, I will never cast you out. You will be satisfied in me forever and ever. The one who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He's saying, come and eat and drink. Put your faith in me. Feast on my body. Feast on my blood. And and it's just not clear, but it soon will be clear. Jesus will go to the cross and die under the righteous wrath of God in the place of sinners. He dies in the place of all who put their repentant faith in him. Jesus' body and blood must be eaten because he is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who brokers a peace between God and man. Indeed, he goes to the cross and has his body torn like bread. He goes to the cross and pours out his blood like wine. Indeed, he dies on the cross to provide forgiveness of sins. He raises from the dead to vindicate his ministry and to guarantee that those who have trusted in him will have eternal life, be freed from death themselves. And so, now today, the church eats those emblems of his body and blood in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. We who follow Jesus feed on his body and drink his blood as we share communion together with him and one another. We who feed on Christ have eternal life, not because we eat the elements before us, but because we believe in him because we've turned from our sins and put our faith in him. We have eternal life because he has saved us. We were dead, and he said, come to life, and we did. And so we join him at his table. We feed on Christ at the table, which reminds us of the cross where our salvation was provided for which lifts our eyes to the future where we will eat and drink at the marriage supper of the Lamb in celebration of the Lord Jesus' victory. And so when we move on from this passage in Kings, tucked away in just a few verses, one of the things we need to walk away with is this. If we are hungry, there is one who can satisfy that hunger. If we are thirsty, there is one who can give to us living water. Non-Christian, you hungry? Put your faith in Christ. Come to Jesus. He will not cast you out. Where the prophet is, there is life. Christian, he still feeds his people. And as we come to the table, let us be reminded that he has met our greatest need of reconciliation with God and He meets our itty-bitty-tiny daily needs.
our soup level needs. Let's remember that he is our greatest satisfaction and treasure. Friends, it might seem like we live in a place similar to Israel, that our land is marked by the dark hues of idolatry. Ah, but take heart. The bread of life is here. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God is preserving for himself a people, and his church is growing like a mustard seed. The king is coming soon. And we, his people, will welcome him with full bellies and happy hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. Your word gives to us life. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who brings us to life and gives us hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone so that we might trust and obey. And Lord, we thank you for this meal before us this morning. We thank you that we can eat and drink to your glory together as we feast on the body and blood of Christ, which binds us, the many, into one. We give you praise and glory and honor. In the name of Jesus, amen.